Hello, I'm Will Viney, and welcome to Pod Academy. Now that strange noise you're listening to is the sound of a functional magnetic resonance imaging scanner. At first, being in a scanner is a really strange experience. Enclosed in this enormous white and rather claustrophobic tube, the machine chugs away and my body's innermost regions are projected onto a screen in the lab's control room. Perhaps this noise is a soundtrack then to an increasingly widespread quest to know what parts of my brain are active when I think, laugh, weep and worry. The suggestion is that if only we can make the right kind of images, then answers to the bigger questions about who I am and why I do what I do might become clearer. But how can information about neural activity in the brain produced in the controlled environment of an imaging lab combine with knowledge produced in other fields of research, such as sociology, history, geography, philosophy and the arts? In this podcast, I speak to two academics that argue that the evidence produced by the cognitive neurosciences might actually be enhanced if researchers from many different disciplines are allowed to design experiments together as a collective. Felicity Callard is a senior lecturer in geography and medical humanities at Durham University, and Des Fitzgerald is a sociologist and postdoctoral research fellow at King's College London. They call their programme for research collaboration experimental entanglements. I began by asking Felicity how she became involved in neuroscientific research. I had been reading neuroscientific research for a number of years because I was aware that that research was being brought into both the social sciences and the humanities. So for a long time I was an outsider reading published journal literature and feeling that I had certain arguments with how that literature was being incorporated by my fellow social scientists and humanities scholars. Then I ended up working for a number of years at the Institute of Psychiatry alongside geneticists and neuroimagers, and therefore feeling much more on the inside of that enterprise and really wanting to know in much greater detail how they were working, how they were thinking, how they were putting their experimental paradigms into practice. And then that turned into a much more active desire to be part of that production of knowledge rather than read it from the outside. Um, I'm, I'm not a neuroscientist. I've never had a desire to be a neuroscientist. I think in, in many ways I'm a very old-fashioned, very classical sociologist. Um, I came in here really through a, a very a very unfashionable um, sociological interest in the new brain sciences as a, as a phenomenon, as something that was interesting and worthy of understanding as a sociological phenomenon. And I suppose almost by accident or, or by the by, when you start getting interested in neuroscience as a phenomenon, you find yourself somehow sucked into these spaces where people are trying to put neuroscience together with other kinds of intellectual practices. And that itself is an interesting phenomenon. Why, why, why are those spaces suddenly sprouting up in the last five years or so? So almost accidentally, I think, in, in trying to understand 
and somehow engage with neuroscience as a social or cultural phenomenon, I found myself ever more drawn into the intellectual and physical space of neuroscience itself as a sort of half collaborator on some neuroscientific project and always in this kind of liminal inside-outside position that, that we've both experienced, I think. As Des has just explained, in the last five years, there have been a number of very explicitly planned for a funding possibilities that have been designed to bring social scientists into the same room as practising neuroscientists. And both of us ended up being in a number of these settings and finding them, certainly I found them fascinating and also quite frustrating because it felt as though my understandings of what those spaces might allow were very different from how some of the other people conceptualising those spaces, how they were thinking of them. So how have neuroscientists and those working in the social sciences tended to, in the past, or currently, work together Well, in many ways, the past is more interesting than the present, I think. So right now, I'm working on a project about um, urban mental health um, and trying to think about what are the links between um, the sociology of of urban space and the kind of neuropsychiatry of urban mental health, and to put those those two things together. And to get at that question, I've been reading a lot of especially American sociology from the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s. And the thing that really strikes me about that as, as a reader in 2013 is how, how uninterested people writing sociology in the 1930s are in a division between a psychiatric and a sociological interest. How obvious and natural it is for them to talk about organisms um, and ecologies at the same time as they're addressing themselves basically to something that looks like social space. That is in stark contrast, I think, to the way that those phenomena are imagined and figured in the sociological literature today, where it is much less obvious and much less natural to find yourself as a sociologist talking about an organism interested in an environment, interested in an embodied individual, in an ecology, and so on and so on and so on. So I think one way to address this question is to think what happened between, say, the 1930s and the 1940s and the end of the 20th century, where once there was this very I'm caricaturing, but once, where once there was this quite easy and natural crossover between the biological and the so- social sciences, today that crossover is a struggle, I think, and we're, we're both somehow reliving and experiencing that struggle to do something that 80 years ago was the path of least resistance, I think, for people like us. So there's a very deliberate attempt now to create spaces that are supposed to be bringing these two bodies, social scientists and neuroscientists into conversation. And I think we're both very struck by that assumption that those are two different kinds of things, practised by two different kinds of people with different sets of expertise and really want to rethink what the relations amongst so-called social scientists and life scientists might be, rather than seeing these two communities that are separated and then have to interact with one another. Well, that's all really very interesting, but I wonder, you know, really what's the problem here? I mean, 
sociologists look after sociology and neuroscientists look after the sciences of our brains, why would we want to bring those two kinds of knowledges together? What's at stake here in their separation? I think two things maybe have happened in, to put it very crudely, in the last 25 years or so that have made this an important question. One is that it's a caricature and it, it's based on a lot of promises that in fact have not been lived up to, but let's go with the caricature, which says that in the last 20 years or so, we have discovered quite a few things about the neurogenetic architecture of our lives and about the implications for that architecture for our social and cultural lives that we did not know 50 years ago. That's point one. Point two is, as we have started to discover those things, we have also come to realize that that architecture is deeply implicated in the social, environmental, and cultural circumstances in which people make, understand, and live their lives. So it seems to me, it seems to us, really at, at the heart of this entanglement project is, is an understanding of a whole range of uh, phenomena that previously we understood as social phenomena or cultural phenomena are now somehow located or stretched across the space of human biology and human sociality. And we think to, in order to come to understand and interpret and maybe even intervene upon those phenomena, it just it is inescapable now that one needs to somehow pull together both the biology of the body and the circumstances of culture, we could say. Maybe we can give a couple of examples. One of the projects that I'm involved in entails thinking about rest. So what is going on when both the brain and the mind, if there is that division, are at rest and not explicitly doing a task like memorising numbers in the scanner. We might think that rest is simply a biological phenomenon. An organism is at its resting state. But as soon as you start trying to study rest in the scanner, you realise that it's caught up with all sorts of other questions about so-called cultural practices of what the body does when it is supposedly at rest. So, for example, psychologists and neuroanatomists are really trying to figure out is the brain at rest engaging in something like mind-wandering? Of course, if we then look at the humanities and the social sciences, there is an incredibly rich archive of experiments, knowledges, models to help us think through different ways in which individuals and cultures have attempted to describe, analyse and elicit daydreaming. And I think a lot of psychologists and neuroscientists are really intrigued about what social scientists and literary scholars might bring to their experiments. So we've known for a hundred years, I think, maybe more, that there are very high rates of various um, psychiatric diagnoses in urban areas vis-a-vis -vis rural areas. One of the classic studies is um, a study by Hollingshead and Redlake, which is also notable given, given that Hollingshead was a sociologist and Redlake was a psychiatrist, and it was a very early um, attempt to put sociology and psychiatry together. And to put it at its most crude, they essentially um, correlated mental illness with social class. 
So as one moved further down the scale, um, one was much more likely to experience various forms of mental illness. And there's been a lot of discussion in intervening years about why that might be. Is it that um, people who are mentally ill find themselves moving down classes? Is it that people who are born into um, uh, marginalized circumstances are more likely to experience the kinds of life stressors that will ultimately produce a diagnosis of mental illness at some point? And in some ways, the less interesting question is which of those things it is. The more interesting question for me is to think, how can, we, how can we put together what we currently know about the psychiatric epidemiology of urban mental illness with a very rich literature on what we know about, very crudely, the politics and economics of urban space? So we know, for, I keep saying we know, but I assume inverted commas, we know now that urban stress can be in some way written on the brain. It can be, it can be measured neurobiologically at the level of the individual. And that's really interesting. But that literature doesn't really, to me, engage with or engages very thinly with the politics of the city. What I'm interested in doing is putting together these very classic sociological themes about class, about marginalization, about race and gender, um, with what we increasingly know about stress and mental illness and so on and so forth. I think there's a huge gap between those two things where one misses the bio biology, the other misses the cultural circumstances. And it is an obvious opportunity for someone to get in the middle of that and say, what would happen if we put these two things together? You've both so far spoken quite a lot in terms of gaps or lacks of engagement or open spaces or missed opportunities. And I wonder to what extent you envision your, your current research on these issues as mediatory. To what extent are you hoping to stand between or occupy those gaps that you are seeing in current research environments? What Des and I, I think, are really interested in is moving away from this model of the between, between the social sciences and the neurosciences. We've been developing a programme called Experimental Entanglements for two reasons. One, we think that the current model of experiment in the neurosciences is an incredibly creative model and one that we can, we can all do a lot more with. And secondly, the term entanglement is our attempt to really come up with a much more embedded and entwined model of how the so-called biological and social and cultural work together. And in some ways, I think we're actually rather modest and trying not to be prissy about what this project might mean. So rather than have endless discussions about bringing social scientists together with neuroscientists, our attempt is actually just to get stuck in with experiments with the labour of working on projects, designing projects, designing protocols, being in the lab, thinking through the data, thinking about fiddling around with some of the protocols without having a model of how this endeavour might look or what, where it might lead from the outside. So we've been going to Berlin to work on a project at getting at so-called inner experience with psychologists Des, over to you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I totally agree with everything Felicity says there. 
I think what we've been really conscious to do is not to say we are the people with the solutions or that we have some magic formula that is going to somehow put the social sciences and neurosciences back together again and the world will be happy ever after it. What, <laughs> no. we, are, no. <laughs> what we are trying to do is, we, and starting with ourselves, I think we're trying to expand imaginations and in particular we're trying to expand experimental imaginations and trying to think what, would it, what, what could an experimental practice look like in the 21st century that somehow put together neurobiological knowledge and small s sociological knowledge. So for example, I'm really interested in um, ex talking to uh, a neurobiologist who's interested in urban stress and asking them what would it mean to expand their experimental imagination to draw in the sociology of the city. Another example is the work um, I've been doing with, with a number of colleagues on the neuroscience of lie detection. Um, so there are a number of studies at the moment which are trying to you know, very basically see whether or not one can tell whether or not someone is lying based on a brain measure, based on an fMRI brain measure. And of course, it seems obvious to critique that and to say, well, we know from many decades of humanistic literary historical study that actually deception is a very multifaceted, very complex, very contingent phenomenon that can't really be removed from a specific situation, that can't be located in a specific body, and so on and so forth. But what we've been interested in doing in that study is to challenge ourselves to say, what if we experimentalize this insight? What if we worked this literary, humanistic, historical insight through an experimental paradigm in collaboration with uh, neuroscientific colleagues? What would happen then? What would it look like? Um, and that's, that's a study that's ongoing. I mean, we've run the experiment and the results are just... Uh, they're under review at the moment, right? so we, we have fingers crossed on that. But what we, what we hope we did is that we, we ran this insight through an fMRI paradigm to produce, I think, quite a novel experimental design and hopefully a novel result. So it seems that, that so much of your work now is looking to the future, and I just wonder, you know, what are the things that... I mean, it seems very reasonable what you're proposing. What's stopping you? doing this sort of work? That is a good question. So um, Des and I like to joke that we have a huge list of um, files on our computer of projects that have been rejected, turned down, people who haven't seen the point in what we're doing. Are they too experimental, too entangled? I think they're too committed to provoking, provoking what is what is often held dear within the social sciences and within the humanities, and maybe even within the neurosciences too. Um, what we're really not interested in doing is, is having a dialogue. We're not interested in staging an encounter. We're, we're interested in really pushing at hard questions that are at the, you know, the, the philosophical core of the social sciences and also the, the kind of basic um, intellectual commitments of the neurosciences. And I think that that urge to be provocative, which I think is absolutely central to what we're calling an experimental entanglement, is also making it very hard to get an experimental entanglement funded, frankly, or has been in yes. the past. Yes, and I think some of our humanities and social science colleagues feel as though, to use, you know, to use the phrase, they think that we've gone native with the neurosciences and feel ambivalent about that. Mm. And I think some neuroscientists who are not that familiar with what we're doing think, as, as you said in your first question, well, neither of us is a neuroscientist. What, why on earth are we the people to be doing this project? 
So yes, maybe it's one of those uh, common stories of failure for many years and finally someone will be convinced. What I want to say is that, that you are trying to forge new relationships to produce a new kind of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And that is disruptive in the market, mm-hmm. in the knowledge economy. You're saying it really well. Yeah. So just I, can only, I can only wish you luck and hope that a podcast like this will bring you, you know, better collaborations, less resistance, and uh, more money, frankly. So thanks so much for speaking to me uh, and for allowing us, Pod Academy, to um, make a recording of you. You've been listening to Pod Academy. You can hear more science and environment podcasts on our website, www.podacademy.org.